Hey, listeners, before we start, we wanted to let you know about a special opportunity to connect with us at Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky, April 11th through 13th. On Thursday, April 12th, join us for lunch from 12 to 145 at the Ice House Event Center. ABWE is co-sponsoring a lunch for any mission-minded T4G attendees, and we'll have a power-packed lunch panel addressing biblical resources for a globalized world with experts like the IMB's VP of Training, Zane Pratt, David Sills of Reaching and Teaching, Rick Denham of Nine Marks, Darren Carlson of Training Leaders International, Bill Walsh of the Gospel Coalition, and Scott Dunford of ABWE. You'll also have a chance to hear from ABWE President Paul Davis. And a special thanks to Baptist Haiti Mission for their role in putting together this panel. So space is limited, just $6 to get in. Grab your tickets now at bhm.org t4g. That's bhm.org t4g. And we'll see you in Louisville on Thursday, April 12th at Together for the Gospel. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, your host, joined with Scott Dunford here at ABWE International. And today we are joined by a special guest from Liberty University, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, PhD, is a professor of English and a senior fellow with the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Liberty, as well as a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And she's also a noted author and a literary scholar. And she's been featured in Christianity Today, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Gospel Coalition, Breakpoint, and a few other publications. And she's also written books, including Fierce Convictions and uh, booked Literature in the Soul of Me. Uh, so that's an impressive resume there. And I, uh, I trimmed a lot out. So Dr. Pryor, thank you for joining us today. And I'm impressed by anyone that has The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The Gospel Coalition all on their resume, <laughs> all in the same line. Well, either you should be very impressed or afraid. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Well, we'll stick with impressed. Well, thanks for joining us today. And this is an exciting uh, chance to talk to you because we generally, obviously, we're we're a podcast about missions, um, but we talk about not only missions in unreached contexts and faraway uh, foreign contexts, but also here at home. Uh, and so we wanted to talk to you in particular about reaching our culture and reaching sort of postmodern, secularized America and the West. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, why don't you share just a little bit about yourself and uh, the work that you're doing right now? Sure. It's great to be on. Um, as you said, I'm a professor of English at Liberty University. Um, I'm actually finishing up my 19th year there. So um yeah, I've, I've given Liberty the best years of my life, and I, I guess I'll stay. Um, but <laughs> uh, so I mainly teach English. Uh, that's my, my day job. Um, but uh, increasingly, I'm, I'm writing for a number of publications, writing books and so forth. Uh, and Liberty is very supportive of me um, and giving me time to write and to speak. And for me, it's all integrated. It's all together because... Um, because I, you know, I love literature and what I love about literature is what, how it helps me engage more in life and learn about life. And God is the source of life and the meaning of life. And so to me, I mean, I used to uh, tell my students, especially when I had the lower level undergraduates, I told them that my, my only goal for them coming into my class is I wanted them to leave it loving life, literature, and God more. 
Um, and that's really sort of the mission statement for my teaching and for my life and for everything that I do. And so I do various things, but they're all uh, part of that mission. I, I just want to say thank you for doing that. I can remember being in high school and not really liking my mission or my English class, but then had a teacher that was passionate about literature and about writing. And uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a great writer, but I do love good books. And it's because of my English professors through the years. So I know that's an important, important, important job. But I, I have a question for you. So I grew up in a very conservative evangelical of course, they never would have called themselves evangelical, fundamentalist, even uh, <laughs> very fundamentalist background, um, did get exposed to literature, loved reading. And then somewhere around my college years, uh, maybe into seminary, um, I got a hold of the Atlantic and fell in love. And uh, not not because I agreed with everything I was reading there, but because there were good writers and guys like James Fallows and Andrew Sullivan uh, really pushed me and my thinking and challenge some of those assumptions. So here you are, you're not just at an evangelical school, you're at Liberty University, um, kind of the poster child for evangelical schools. If there ever was one. Um, but also your your writing is getting put in places that are not known for anything to do with evangelicalism, <laughs> um, like the Atlantic. So, so I just have a question for you. How does an evangelical like yourself navigate the secular media and academia in such a way as to to hold firm to conviction, um, but also be winsome and have an opportunity and a voice to, to be heard in those settings? Well, just start with the small questions, why don't you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I do, I do, you know, you as you, you've kind of described, I do feel like I um, bridge two very different worlds. Um, but it started before coming to Liberty. I mean, it started really when I, I was um, a Christian and the only Christian that I knew of in a very liberal, secular PhD program in uh, New York and um, and in an environment that was actually not only not Christian, but pretty hostile to Christians of my of my type. And so I I really had to sink or swim there. I mean, I um, I was not a closeted Christian. I was out as a Christian. I received hostility as, as a Christian, had a hard time um, navigating all that, uh, but finally encountered a couple of professors in my program who were truly liberal and tolerant, like classical, classically liberal, and meaning that they were actually open-minded and they supported me um, and allowed me and encouraged me to to be a scholar and a Christian and to integrate those things. And so these, these unbelieving secular liberal professors um, really set an example for me of how to do that on the other side. When I left that environment, went to sort of the opposite place of, of Liberty. And I, I mean, I've just always had to, um, my first book that you mentioned, Book Literature and the Soul of Me, really is the longer story of how I learned to integrate my love of learning and the life of the mind with my love of God and his word. And it, it's a terrible thing that we live in a culture where those things have to be integrated because really they cannot be separated. I mean, the God of the universe who created the world and words does <laughs> is the source of all thinking and all knowing and all reason. And so we're just... We live in a culture where we have to, they've been separated and we have to figure out how to put them back together again. Um, but 
being at, you know, so there I, I left one extreme environment and went to another extreme environment. Um, and for me, the integrity is, is being who I am and, but still being open to other people and ideas. And, and really the, sh the short story about how I ended up writing for the Atlantic is that I was writing for a Christian publication fairly regularly and completely out of the blue, I got an email from an editor at the Atlantic who asked me to pitch some stories to them. And I was just, I had, I was blown away. I was like, why is the Atlantic contacting me asking me to write for them? And I wrote back and I said, I'm a conservative evangelical Christian. Is that what you want? And the editor wrote back and said, yes. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that if I began writing for them, that they knew who I was and what I stood for and that I wasn't going to have to compromise. And I know it's sort of a cliche kind of thing, but I, I just, God has blessed me because of that unwillingness to compromise and to, um, to just try to really carefully navigate those worlds. Well, that's, um, that's interesting to, to hear that, you know, it was that God blessed you and gave you influence because you weren't compromising, which is usually the opposite of maybe sometimes how we think it's going to go that, you know, we think that if we compromise or change in one area that we're going to gain a hearing or something like that. Um, thanks for sharing some of that backstory, not to dump all of the, the difficult kind of weighty questions all on you at once, but we did have a question on Twitter that you probably saw from a I think it's Josh Hedrick and it's related to that. Yeah, it's completely related. Uh, cause he asked you, will self-identifying as an evangelical instantly destroy your credibility with some of these groups? So groups in academia, groups in the media, and is it, is it an intellectual non-starter? Um, yeah, the short answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and, and it is, it is difficult. So, but the flip side of it, I mean, it, we're, we're really talking about stereotypes here. Um, and stereotypes are just that they're stereotypes, but they stereotypes exist because there is some truth in, in them. So if, if you are known in some secular or academic environment for being a Christian, even just a Christian, let alone a conservative evangelical Christian, um, you can expect that you're going to be stereotyped. And so your job then is to, to show where the stereotype isn't true. Um, the, the, the positive side of that is that the, the bar of expectation is extremely low. <laughs> <laughs> so you, it's, it's, really, it's really not that hard to impress people. <laughs> um, when the bar is that low. And I, I say that only half kiddingly um, because that really is, is the experience, I think. Um, but no, I mean, I really, I, it, it is the reality. Um, but it's not, it's not just the reality for conservative evangelical Christians. I mean, every, everyone who exists in some sort of a stereotype, whether it's a racial one or an ethnic one or uh, a, um, a socioeconomic one, um, you know, th we're, this is just how human beings are. We, stereotypes are, are, are tools, but they're limitations. And we should all be living our lives in such a way that we are trying to get beyond the stereotypes, whether it's the one that we're in or the one that we're seeing people in. Um, and so even though it's true that um, being in an academic or intellectual environment as an evangelical Christian is going to be a huge disadvantage from the get-go in terms of perception. Um, there's no reason to let that become a chip on your shoulder or to 
um, to lament it, um, just deal with it, show where the stereotype is, is not true. Um, and where there is truth in it, um, because it is true that we, we believe that God's word is true. We believe he exists. We believe the Bible is his word. We believe a lot of weird kinds of, um, mystical supernatural stories that they are actually true. Um, Yes, we believe those things, um, but what we do is to show, to put all the pieces together about why it's not so weird and why um, it is, why the, why, why there are, it's reasonable to believe those things. So um, I just think, I think it's, I love challenges, um, and it, to me, that's an exciting challenge, and um, it's just the reality that we're in, and that's okay. What I think I hear you saying is that in some ways, Evangelicals do not need to be victims in this situation, but rather um, the stereotype itself allows us an opportunity to clarify some cultural assumptions that have probably been there for a long time, but we have to get a chance to expose uh, the truth in those situations. Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing you saying? You you, you really said it a lot better than I did. So yes. <laughs> Scott, are you actually Dr. Pryor's ghostwriter? Is that what's going on here? Oh, I wish. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Exactly. So as we t- think about in terms of missions, um, and we think about our missionaries that are serving in very secular countries. And America is increasingly secular, but our missionaries sometimes are serving in places in Europe um, and certainly in in, uh, in Asia that are very secular in their mindset. And um, you work in the area of literature. And uh, so I'm just curious, what can a culture's literature tell us about where a culture is going? Yeah, yeah. Well, I deal, I, you know, my specialty is literature from the past. So I um, I tend to deal with, you know, where we've been, uh, but of course we have to know where we've been in order to know where we're going, I think. Um, and so, um, I mean, I'll just talk about how my studies in 18th and 19th century literature have helped me in our culture. Um, you know, there's a lot of division in our culture today, politic politically, um, and even within evangelicalism, there's a lot of division. Really? <laughs> I don't know. That's the controversy. I don't know. And in all of the many, many conversations I've had with folks about these very, you know, they're very hurtful and serious political divisions and disagreements. Um, very few people have any sense of any historical context longer than 10 years. I'm, I, and I'm really, I, I'm saying that very literally. Um, and people seem to, as bad as things are now, and it's not to say that there aren't serious issues we have to deal with, um, they have no sense of what Christians went through when, you know, during the Civil War during abolition in England or what Christians went through when the Reformation was taking place and Catholics and Protestants were burning one another at the stake. Now, I, again, I realize that's setting the bar very, very low <laughs> in terms of what our societal expectations are for civilization. Um, but yet this is where we came from. And so when I look at where we are now, I can recognize the work that we need to do, but we, it's also, it's, 
my despair, my, my temptation to despair is tempered by my, my constant realization of where we've come from because I, because my mindset is, you know, and I don't even go back really that far into ancient history and my, my own studies that much, but just, just a few hundred years gives me a much broader context for understanding where we are now and then where we can go. And that is because of literature. I'm not really um, a scholar of history, although I, you know, that's a side, that's part of studying literature, but just simply reading literature helps me to understand how people lived and think, thought and suffered and grew um, over the ages. And that's true for literatures in, in every culture. Well, and I have a question related to that. Would you say that you think that cultural memory is just as short in some of the other secularized Western cultures, specifically as we're thinking in Europe? So I think we can probably all agree that in America, the collective memory is pretty short. You know, so you would say it goes back maybe a decade uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but do you think that that is happening as much in Europe or do you think that there's a greater sense of history there? And related to that, you know, how can thinking through literature and poetry help us understand not just our cultural moment, uh, but also other worldviews and other cultures? And 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 maybe even if, if you had some tips for, for a missionary or for an aspiring missionary, how to use literature to read a culture? Well, I can't speak to um, what different European countries are like on the ground now. Um, so I wouldn't be an expert in that. But I would say just in my, you know, in my few travels um, to Europe um, and to England in particular, I would say that there, there is inherently a much longer sense of history there because of their, because they those countries have existed for so much longer. So I, I, their buildings are hundreds, if not thousands of years old and their monuments and their art. Um, and so I do think this is actually the problem that we're talking about, about the short cultural memory memory is a very particularly American problem. Um, and, you know, you know, our, our history is so much shorter uh, and we catapulted fairly quickly to, you know, through prominence um, as, as a world power. And, and many people just, you know, don't even, they, we have forgotten um, the famous words from the other across the ocean, the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. I mean, we forget that that little tiny island once controlled three quarters of the globe and no one ever thought that would change. And you know what? The same thing could happen to America. And I just, I don't think we have the, the um, perspective or humility to, um, to even have to recognize that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, um, Americans are uniquely forward thinking in my experience. And, uh, and that certainly does even affect, you know, the way we, the way we treat um, other cultures and certainly the way we treat um, maybe marginalized or hurting people in our own culture. Um, like, come on, get, get over it and let's move on already. Right. I mean, it's a strength and a weakness, right? This sort of newness and innovative spirit and entrepreneurial um, approach and independence and the emphasis on the individual. These are the things that have made America, sorry, um, great. That I mean, <laughs> we are a great country. Um, <laughs> and it, they are wonderful things. And I love America. And I'm so thankful to, um, to live here. Um, but, you know, as with anything else, our strength is also 
our weakness. And so we have to hold those two things in, in tension and, um, and, and be humble enough to learn from history and to learn from other cultures and nations. Um, and, 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 and not just for even lofty grand reasons, but just simply to give our, ourselves the perspective that we need to not despair or not be arrogant, um, and to temper, um, those opposing impulses in these difficult political times. And that kind of humility that you're talking about is critical when we're talking about cross-cultural ministry and uh, global missions, uh, realizing, you know, some of our own ethnocentrism that we can have, that we can be guilty of. And not just, you know, because I, I'm not, you know, my area is right here, pretty limited. It's not really that cross-cultural. But what you just said also applies to cultural ministry here in our little pockets of America. So, for example, even the, the abortion issue, um, which, you know, I'm um, very passionate about and involved in, we have to have humility to listen to and understand those whose views are different from us, because we're never going to change people's minds and hearts on that issue if we can't even hear where they're coming from or why, you know, where what they're uh, why they why they cling to this so um, so dearly? Um, we have we have to understand and to listen if we're going to address any any need in our culture um, that or others. So to follow follow that up because that, I think that is what you're describing there in dealing with someone that has a has a um, the hardness a pro yeah hardness but a, a very firm pro abortion view. I find myself within the culture talking to them and going like we have nowhere to go here, but then. You know, just to, to translate that to a cross-cultural context, I can think of a number of cross-cultural situations where I feel the same frustration, where their worldview is so different than mine, their cultural perspective is so different that I don't even know how to move forward. So using the abortion issue that you're talking about as kind of a template for that, yeah. um, how would you begin engaging someone on a completely other side? Because when I talk to someone who is pro pro-abortion, pro I just go, I don't even know how you could come to that conclusion. So the, I have no starting point. So I'm just curious, like, how do you begin that discussion? Because I think that could be very relevant to others that are thinking about other cultural um, things we can't get past. Well, one thing, I, this is, uh, might be sort of a, this is a little joke, but it's, it's, it's true. I always, I've always said there are two kinds of pro-choice people, um, ignorant and wicked. Um, and you know, there definitely is, uh, and, and I'm obviously overstating the case, but there definitely is sort of a, there's definitely a demonic satanic element to, uh, to what abortion is. And there's a stronghold there. And there are people who are caught into that stronghold, but I would say the vast, you know, we've got the vast majority of Americans in the mushy middle who are kind of, you know, they don't like abortion. They don't know what it is. They, they don't even know what the law says. So they probably are, uh, would, would favor more restrictions than actually exist. And that's where we begin our work. And, and so one just small example, um, uh, to, to give a specific of what you just said, it, it's really just building common ground. I just, just came from some meetings in Washington, uh, related to the March for Life and the annual, annual anniversary of, uh, the Roe versus Wade ruling and, and came out of there and I just was inspired to tweet, um, and post on Facebook the statement, abortion is not nice. And um, 
because we live in a culture, especially the younger, um, younger people who, who value being nice and that being nice is important. And, um, I think most people, when this is what I said, I said, I said, you know, most people would at least agree that abortion is not nice. And there might be someone who doesn't think abortion is murder or it's not a child, but they might, if they agree, it's not nice. Um, you know, that's a, that's a starting point. And of course I ended up getting trolled by all kinds of, uh, Christians who just couldn't believe that I would say something so gentle about abortion, but it's like, but you know, this is just a starting point. Um, if we can find a value that we, most of us agree on and agree on that, then we can say, okay, well, what's not nice about it and unpack that further. It's really not that hard, but we just live in a cult. I think our Christian culture is so afraid or self righteous. I don't know what it is that we, we feel like we have to say the hardest, most truthful thing every time. And oh, that, that is so true. And again, so important for any kind of ministry of evangelism in any culture, understanding, yes, there is an element of wickedness, like you mentioned, there's an element of, you know, Romans one, you're suppressing the truth and ungodliness. And there's, there's unrighteousness and, and unbelief at root is sin. And at the same time saying, let me find something in your worldview, even if it's completely incoherent, let me find some sort of bridge, some sort of connecting point on which we can build. Uh, I, I think it's rare that you find somebody that can hold those two truths in tension. I, I wonder, like this is a little off script, but I, sometimes I wonder if part of that is our increasing tribalism in that I've got to send signals to my group that I'm still in the fold, that I'm still orthodox. And if I, and because everything we do now is digitally recorded, you know, through our Facebook, email, Twitter, you know, all these other podcasts, podcasts, <laughs> yeah, everything you're saying here will be, will be analyzed. Right. Um, that I wonder if that makes us more hesitant to engage with others because we're afraid of what that might signal. Uh, I don't know. Just, it's interesting. I, I think that's very, I think that that is a big part of it. That's a big part of it. And I, I mean, I personally, because I, I do this kind of dialogical, dialectical stuff on social media and in my life, um, I've, I'm victim to having screenshots taken and circulated. I mean, people take the, you know, something I say and, and, and it, so it, it is risky. I will acknowledge it's risky. Um, but what, what's the point of being a Christian and, and trying to spread the gospel if it's not to take risks? So that's just, you know, I'm just sad for the people who, who are confined to and shackled to that kind of thinking. And that is what I love about your work is that you do see it as your mission of taking the gospel into some of these conversations in spite of the risk. Um, so in our cultural moment right now, uh, call it whatever you want, kind of using postmodernism as an umbrella term, which may or may not be helpful, but we'll go with that. How do you see postmodernism affecting academia uh, and affecting some of the other spheres that you're working in? And why have you sort of chosen to make that your personal mission field? What compels you uh, to reach out to them? Yeah, well, talk about uh, risk. I mean, I take a risk every time I say, you know, postmodernism isn't evil. Yeah. <laughs> so here we go. I, I, that's what I want to start out. I want to say to you. you unpack that. Yeah, please unpack yes. that. Um, uh, so the, the reason that I'm passionate about understanding postmodern culture is because that is the moment that we live in. Um, and too many Christians have been taught, you know, a very truncated view of post 
modernity and it's just simply postmodernism teaches that there's no such thing as truth. It's all relative and it's evil. That's all that they know about it. As if it was one monolithic thing. Yes, exactly. Or as if, and here's the, here's the big if, well, it's not as if they do not even understand what modernity, what modernism is. So all, all the, the only thing that postmodernism is, is after or post modernity. So we have to know what modernism is to know whether, you know, how to even begin understanding postmodernism. And so the modern era is actually my area of academic specialty. So modernity is like roughly from, you know, the, around the Enlightenment. So 18th century, 17th century, 19th century. Um, and I love that period. It's, like I said, it's my period of specialty. But that is also the age where um, it, it brought us the rise of the individual. It, it, it's centered on science and rationalism. Um, it really is. It's called the age of reason. And I love reason and I love science um, and what is well, I, I love what it's done for us. But modernity, because it relied so much on reason and science and evidence, um, it actually does not make room for God and the supernatural and the mystical. Um, and it's modernity that brought us sort of the you know, liberal theology that says that, you know, that. The Bible can't, it has to be subject to scientific testing and inquiry and it doesn't hold up. So postmodernism rejects modern certainty. That's what it is in a a nutshell. Um, And so there's a lot of room for us in a postmodern age to say, okay, so if science doesn't answer all the questions, then where can we turn? Well, you know, there's... Maybe, maybe there is room for an understanding of God and his word and, and for how our stories and our experiences shape our understanding of the world. Um, so post-modernity is very risky, but it actually makes room for the kinds of, of um, epistemologies and uh, ways of knowing that modernity rejected. Yeah, I've heard it said that one of the best things about post-modernity is that it kills modernity and in uh, the anti-supernaturalism um, that, that comes out of that. Exactly. Now, it makes room for a lot of other things. So, yes. And so that is risky and dangerous. But again, um, you know, uh, Christianity you know, is is not is, is not is not a safe. It's not safe. <laughs> just just uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, I guess. And Aslan, you know, he's 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 not safe, but he's good. <laughs> Yeah, he's not safe, but he's good. Yeah. So really what you're saying then is that postmodernism for missionaries at home or abroad, using missionary in the broadest sense of the word, is not just a, an adversary or a foe. It's it's an opportunity. Um, so there's a missiologist, Paul Hebert. Uh, he does some great work in his book, uh, Transforming Worldviews. And uh, really ever since kind of the explosion of the use of the term worldview in evangelicalism, uh, we think in terms of, you know, these big, like you said, monolithic, uh, you know, worldviews as if, you know, here is what modernity believes, here is what postmodernism believes. And he does a good job of showing that worldviews are much more complex and multi-layered than that. And none of them are, are completely sufficient in themselves. So within them, there's all these pendulum swings. And really all we're witnessing with postmodernism is a pendulum swing, maybe away from the hyper-rationality that characterized modernity leading up to it. And so maybe 
there's some ways that biblical truth can actually reach people more now that people are sort of feeling some of the emptiness of the thinking that came before in modernity. Exactly, exactly. So so we don't need to be afraid of or resistant to post-modernity anymore than would we should be have been of modernity or before that pre-modernity with its, you know, the the abuses in the church before the Reformation or pagan mythology. I mean, every major era of human existence has some truth and also a lot of error. And so we just simply find ourselves in a place, yes, where the pendulum has swung a little bit to another um, direction. And our job as Christians, no matter where or when we live, is to understand the cultural moment and um, to be prepared to give an answer. I can remember moving to to um, East Asia and and coming across some English books written by someone from that culture and how that just really challenged my thinking and opened my mind to some ways of thinking that I hadn't considered before. Not, not that it changed you know, my convictions, but helped me to understand someone else's perspective. Um, in what ways does literature, and I'm thinking here, like maybe we have a, you know, a 60-year-old listener out there who was kind of raised in the middle of modernity and has gone through some, has been a part of some of these worldview shifts, even in American culture, that is looking at their grandchild and going, I don't get them. And let me uh, just say, if you're 60 years old and you're into podcasts, good for you. Oh, you are up on technology. My grandma was 80. I think she listens. So uh, she's one of our two. Yeah, but my she's grandma. your grandma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my grandma was shaking her head and going, I have no clue what they're talking about. So but people love stories. So uh, in what ways could literature help someone either bridge or understand someone else's worldview perspective? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just through literature. I mean, through literature, we just simply enter the world of someone else that is, you know, far away from us in our experience, whether it's in time or place. Um, it creates empathy. More and more scientific studies are showing how reading, reading literary stories, not just like beach fiction, but the kinds of stories that are written and crafted in such a way that they show rather than tell. Um, so in other words, when we read li- the difference between literary fiction and say, you know, a 10 cent novel, detective novel or whatever is that, um, we have to interpret more with literary fiction and that actually, um, replicates what we do in real life. Like when we meet a person, uh, or have a conversation with our boss or our coworker, um, they aren't necessarily putting all the cards on the table and because they don't even know what, what it is that they're thinking or what they've been through that morning. They're not telling us everything we have to interpret and evaluate all day long when we interact with people. And so literary fiction that shows rather than tells us what, you know, people were, um, are, are thinking or feeling and it requires us to interpret situations. It, it exercises those same skills and allows us to, um, to be more empathetic to those who are, to everyone who is not ourselves. Um, and so whether we're reading a work of literature from a previous age or from another culture, or just simply like a younger person or someone from a different race, uh, we can see the world through their, through their eyes. And it is an experience. It ends up being part of our experience. I mean, just reading about someone else's experience, it enters into our mind and becomes part of our own framework for understanding the world, even if we don't consciously see that way at 
it stretches and bends our minds and our perception just simply by reading someone else's experience. There's a real piece of practical advice that comes in with that then relating to global missions, which is if you're going to serve in an Islamic context, read the Quran. If you're going to serve in India, read the Gita, read the Vedas. If you're if you're going to whatever country it is, read the literature that's formed and shaped that people. Not that every person knows that they're consciously shaped by it, but the same. It sounds like you're saying the same skills that are involved in, for instance, uh, being a missionary, um, reading people, reading cultures, understanding cues, uh, are the same skills involved in interpreting literature, uh, looking at what's beneath the surface, investigating, and and knowing how to listen. What I'm what I'm hearing too is not not just reading religious works, but also reading you know the 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 narrative fiction. You know, like I, I, I've read uh, Khaled Hosseini's a couple of his books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One, they're beautifully written books, but also you get a, a glimpse into someone else's perspective and experience and worldview that I have a different level of empathy for Afghani's than I did before reading those stories. Right, that's an excellent example. Um, and then even reading works that are critical of, of us, of, of Americans or Christians. I mean, um, for example, to read Flannery O'Connor, who, who presents a pretty critical view of you know, Southern Bible Belt Christianity. Um, it's very hard to read someone, sort of an outsider, she was a Catholic and an outsider, read her the way that she sees um, cultural Christianity. It's a, it's a painful, hard read, but it's allowing us to see ourselves through someone else's eyes and um, forces some honest self-examination. No, I, I think that's that's great advice, great advice for missionaries, but also really great advice just for um, a North American Christian who's trying to engage the culture they live in. Yeah, we all need to slow down. We all need to sharpen our observational skills, and we all need to uh, think with a lot of humility about our own culture. So, so I'm curious, um, and as we get ready to wrap up here, one, it, it's been super engaging and enjoyable for me to just talk to you about the, these things. I would love to talk all day, but I, I, before I, I'd feel embarrassed if we let you leave our our show without talking about what you're reading right now. So I'm curious about what writers and literature profs are reading. So what are you reading right now? Well, at this very, very moment today, I'm reading my textbooks for for next semester. Thanks for um, taking a break for us. Scott has his pen ready, and he's ready to write down whatever you say, so that he's going to put it on his got reading a pen list. Pen in one hand, and my Amazon shopping cart in the other. So. <laughs> oh my god! Well, all right. Well, I will. I will. Um, uh, uh, I'm just. I I need to uh, look up the author's name, but um, I I just read the most exquisite, um, the exquisite book called um, Phil Simmer Falter Wither. And it's a perfect example of what we were just talking about because the book is narrated um, in second person, which is Mm. very unusual and it's usually not done well. It's narrated in second person. It's a mentally disabled man, an older man, talking to his dog, who is his only companion, and telling his dog through the story all of the, you know, the, the torment and the teasing and the neglect that he experienced his whole life, it is the most amazing story because you literally enter the mind of this gentle, um, hurting man um, who's trying to 
make sense and peace out of his life with his only companion, this dog. It is absolutely stunning. It's an amazing book. Um, it's by a, Sarah Baum. That sounds like the right author. Yeah, Sarah Baum. She's an Irish writer. It's set, it's set in Ireland. Um, and uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. It's very literary, but it's not hard. It's just, it's very poetic. Um, it's, it's slow and boring, but just intense. I mean, I say that, you know, like someone who's looking for action adventure is not going to like it, but it really, it does exactly what we've been talking about. It helps you understand someone else's point of view in a very human, very powerful, touching way. You know, I love this because there's a discipline that especially I'll speak for a lot of us young guys. There's a temptation for people who are interested in ministry and theology to only ever read the Bible and read Puritans <laughs> and read the latest thing that, you know, Tim Keller wrote and like that. And that's your only categories. And so there's a discipline and it relates to being missional of reading broadly of reading secular works of reading things that you wouldn't necessarily agree with or pick otherwise, but being conversant with culture and not being so insular. Um, I think of Proverbs 18, one, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. And we have a tendency to do that in our reading. Do you have any other reading recommendations? Well, I would, I would just add to that, that the virtue that is developed, the, the virtue that's most required in reading literary works and like, and poetry, for example, is patience mm. and patience with the text, patience with yourself. And I would argue also that patience is probably the virtue we most need in missions today because, you know, it's, we're in this for the, for the long term. Um, so my other recommendations, of course, Flannery O'Connor, her works are not for the, for the faint of heart. They're, they're hard and they're violent and they're odd. But if you like that, I would recommend that. Um, one of my, um, another just amazing novel that I read, probably one of my top five, which is saying a lot, um, is that I read a couple of years ago is Marilyn Robinson's book, Housekeeping. Uh, again, about a little neglected girl, I guess, I, <laughs> living in Iowa uh, in the early 20th century. I'm sensing a trend. I think so, yes. I, I really, I do like heartbreaking stories. So. And, of course, I love the classics. I talk about, you know, I have, I talk about a lot of these classics in my first book that I mentioned, Booked. So, that it, it's, you know, for someone who doesn't really know how to, how to approach the classics or how to begin to, um, digest them. I sort of take people through uh, a um, an autobiographical journey through some of the classics like Jane Eyre, Great Expectations, um, some poets and so forth, some of those classic works of literature that formed my um, life in that book. Um, so I, I love Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, the Brontes. You can't do better than them. I, I, I appreciate kind of giving us uh, some insight into into some some places we can get started in literature if we haven't read before, but also some things that are going on currently. What, what are some ways that people, if they want to engage with you further uh, through your writing, uh, what are some of the things you're working on in writing? How can people find your work online? Um, and uh, maybe you can just give some people some help if they want to read a little bit more of some of the things you're, you're working on now. The best place to get more KSP. <laughs> Probably Twitter. Um, uh, Twitter is my mission field, I think. I didn't start out that way, but it's become that. So you can follow me on Twitter at KS Pryor. Um, and I'm actually, I just, uh, just received the edits back for my next uh, book, which is 
uh, coincidentally, um, called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And that'll be out in um, September with Brazos Press. So again, I'll be taking readers on another journey um, through great works of literature, but this time looking at um, the specific virtues. Some we've talked about today. I have a chapter on patience, a chapter on humility, and how we can see those in works of great literature. And uh, I, I do write uh, fairly often for Christianity Today, uh, my latest piece being um, a commemoration of Roe versus Wade and what we can learn about abortion through poetry. Uh, so you can look for that. And um, yeah, Twitter is the best place to keep up with me. And I have a link there um, to my site at Liberty, where I try to keep uh, all of my works. It's not always up to date, but all of my, my works are collected on my um site connected to liberty well and if twitter is your mission field then we will be sure to mobilize an army of prayer warriors to intercede for you and for your sanity <laughs> twitter is, <laughs> I appreciate a, it. is a wonderful place isn't not um but anyway thank you so much for joining us today dr Pryor. no thank you very much for a wonderful conversation i appreciate it If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And please don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.